Hi guys, it's Kim popping in with some editor's notes. You may notice in this episode that our audio is extra crispy. I don't really know why that happened, but I did the best I could with it, so apologies for that. Also, I reference in the episode Ruth going into Boaz's bedroom, and I believe he's actually sleeping on the threshing room floor when that happens, so sorry about that. podcast. My name is Val. And I'm Kim. We are here to discuss the uh, the life of Ruth in the Bible, and I'll go ahead and let Kim take over with that discussion. When I go back and I look at the bad girls of the Bible, which is who I initially wanted to make the podcast about, like, I have some sort of expectation that those stories are going to be offensive or hurtful in some way, but I really wasn't prepared for how fucked up the story of Ruth actually is. What do you learn about Ruth in the LDS church? From what I remember, and admittedly, it's been a long time since I've sat in those sermons. I know that she was, like, descendant of Jesus. Yeah, she was uh, one of the ancestors of Jesus. Yeah, and that she was basically just, like, married away inside of the stories. I'll go ahead and do my retelling of the story to start with then. So, uh, in Judah, there is a famine, and a guy named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons go to Moab to escape the famine. And in Moab, the two sons marry two Moabitess women, Ruth and Orpah, and then all the men die. The husband dies, and then the two sons who married the Moab women die. And after a while, Naomi, who's the the mother-in-law, she hears that the famine in Judah has stopped, like they have food now, they can go back. So she decides to go back, and her two daughters-in-law come with her for a while, and she's like, no, you guys don't need to be doing this, you need to go back to Moab and be with your own family. I'm not gonna have sons to give you, I'm too old to have children. You need to go find, like, husbands among your kinsmen. At first, Ruth and Orpah are both like, we're not going to leave you. But then they go for a while, and Naomi tells them again, okay, for real this time, like, you guys should go back to Moab. And Orpah agrees to go back to Moab, but Ruth insists on staying with Naomi and says, wherever you go, I will go. Whoever your people are will be my people. That's a weird promise to make to your mother-in-law? Like... Uh, wherever you go, I will go with you, and whoever your people are shall be my people. That's intense. That sounds weird, yeah, I mean, but whatever. I think it sounds more familial. That definitely, like, like, trying to be supportive like, of... Because she's already lost everything, right? Ruth hasn't lost everything. Naomi has lost everything. Ruth could go back and be with her own people and get remarried and have a life. Like, I wouldn't say that to my mother-in-law, but I might say that to my partner. I think it's... And maybe this is just sort of part of the religious aspect of it but this like concept that you would do anything for your parents like you're like the dutiful daughter-in-law and you would like do anything to make your mother-in-law happy sort of thing i think that's a kind of a trope that 
frequently happens. Either that or, like, you hate them, you know? I always hear about the evil mother-in-law. I don't hear about the mother-in-law that you're like, well, I'm gonna go be Jewish now. Whatever. That's just me. I think that the rest of the story will go on to prove that this is a toxic relationship, but... Ruth goes with Naomi to Judah, and they go to Bethlehem in time for the barley harvest. They're in poverty in Bethlehem, but Elimelech has an inheritance of land, but with the weird, like, inheritance laws, Naomi can't get it. She has to sell it unless she can find a kinsman of Elimelech to assert his inheritance rights, which through some strange contrivance also means that that person gets to have Ruth as his wife. Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, and Naomi sends Ruth to glean in his fields. So gleaning in the fields is that there's like a law that if you were gathering your grain from the field, anything that fell on the ground in the process of gathering was left for poor people to come through and clean it up and eat. Sends Ruth out to the field, telling her, you know, just glean barley that falls, and she's with a group of poor people doing this. So Boaz sees her in the fields and he likes her. He's got his eye on her. So he tells his young men who are doing the harvesting to leave extra barley for her. He lets her like eat with the rest of the workers and stuff like that. Ruth goes back to Naomi and she's like, hey, I got all of this barley. And Naomi's like, oh, clearly Boaz was giving you extra barley because he likes you. So what I want you to do is to go into Boaz's room at night and lay down at his feet under the covers. He'll he'll know what to do. He'll tell you what to do. Oh wow. And so so she goes and she gets in bed with Boaz laying at his feet and he wakes up and he's like freaked out and she's just like you know I I'm loosely related to you. My mother-in-law told me to do this. And he's like, "Yeah, okay. I will marry you. I'll marry you. I'll buy the property from Naomi, making it legal but keeping it still within the same family. But there is another person who is more closely related to Elimelech and he has the right to supersede me and take you and the land with it. So I need to go to the elders and ask him to give away his right to marry you and to buy the field so that I can take it instead. That happens. They go to the elders. Boaz talks to the other relative and apparently they take off their shoes to acknowledge that an, an agreement has been made. They like okay. their original shake on it is one of them takes off his, his shoe. Just feet, people. <laughs> the guy is like, sure, you can have the land and by extension, Ruth, as your wife. And so then that's that. And him and Ruth get married. They have a son named Obed. Obed begets Jesse. Jesse begets David. And then David is in the lineology of Jesus. So it's a big fucking deal. So yeah, this story is kind of gross. Yeah, it's kind of a weird story. And I mean, this happens a lot with these like sort of arranged marriage type stories or like stories that are made to, you know, like, oh, I, I survived by marrying this person and acquiring this land. And like, it's all very, it feels very foreign to us, especially I think because of the modern times that we live in. And I'm sure there are places where maybe this is less foreign, but eh. You know, there's just no part of that that's not going to feel kind of gross to me. Right. Well, and like, she is, she is property. 
begin with. And that was the thing in like ancient law, I believe, too. Like biblically, if you got married and then you died before you could have any children with that woman that you got married to, one of your younger siblings was supposed to marry her and father children with her to continue on your line. Right. You can't separate out the fact that like, she is property in this story. And the story is commending her for being good property. Yeah, just something about, like, her just being willing to do whatever they want to, like, meet an end. It's right. it's gross. She doesn't have a character. She's a character without a character. She doesn't do or say anything except to promise complete obedience to her mother-in-law and then just does whatever her mother-in-law says. Like, she she has literally no agency within the story. And basically, the mother-in-law told her to go sleep with him for all intents and purposes. Like, go crawl under the covers. Like, and, and it wasn't word for word that that's what she said, but like, why would she go at night to go lie at his feet, like under his they, covers? I actually didn't look up if that's like a cultural practice of some sort. It's just so weird. Maybe I'll look it up right now. Yeah, I'm looking it up too. But it's just so gross and creepy. Like, she's nothing. She's just a basically silent, obedient non-entity. You know, the more I think about it, like, maybe we just need a whole podcast about feet. But, like, (laughs) there is a lot of feet stuff. I I don't know if it was just, like, a cultural thing at the time, but, like, the uncovering of the feet, the laying by the feet, they wash people's feet, just, like, all of these different things surrounding, like, feet as, like, a cultural thing that seemed to be, like, pretty reoccurring. I almost want to do, like, a find, like, go through a, a PDF of the Bible and see all of the instances where I find feet. So if uh, anyone's listening and wants to listen to the Foot podcast about the Bible, let me know if that's... (laughs) Gosh, okay. Legally, Naomi could force him to do this because he's like within the line of redeemers. Boaz doesn't legally have to redeem Ruth. Like, he can, but he doesn't have to. Redeemer laws applied only to brothers from the same household, but the practice of redeeming extended family members was clearly in place and considered honorable. And so there, there are no brothers left who could be forced into redeeming Ruth, and no man from the extended family had come to Naomi with an offer. Apparently, redeeming a Moabite widow has no financial or social upside. So then when Boaz, because he's within the family line, starts paying more attention, Naomi is like, oh, well, he could totally redeem us, which that's a weird concept of redeeming her through marriage. Yeah, like she didn't have any inherent value and was like basically like a poor person like gathering what was left on the fields prior to this. So it was just like, yeah, the, the treatment of just women and widows in this case, like they lost all their value when they lost their husbands. Really right. harrowing. Naomi, yeah. Naomi is trying to send Ruth to propose marriage to Boaz, but trying to do it in a way that won't get her like called out for being a harlot and losing her honor because she could lose everything with it. So she sends her to do it in a way that will like make Boaz feel like it's the honorable thing to do. Hmm. Interesting. I guess like not necessarily like a sexual encounter, but like more just like a marriage proposal by lying down at his feet, just being like, I like, submit to you i guess like i don't know there's something it feels feels weird just just like this sort of like 
subhuman, you know, you know, property thing. There didn't seem to be any mention that they actually fancied each other, just that, like, he sort of fancied her. Oh, okay. So the foot thing is part of the Redeemer law. When asking a man for a redemption marriage, the woman uncovered the man's foot. If he refused to give her the redemption marriage, she could demand his sandal be removed publicly, uncovering his foot in front of the entire tribe. How dare you show so, my wiggly toes to the whole community? Oh, this article is very slut-shamey. Oh my gosh. Oh, jeez. The Bible doesn't shy away from showing us men who are weak-willed with immoral sex, but the Bible calls Boaz a kind and honorable man. Yeah, apparently, like, it is a thing, but she... The way she did it was more private, so that, like, Boaz could turn her down without making it a public scene. So, I guess that's something. But, yeah, she's just got no agency throughout the entire course of the story. She's praised for kind of just occupying space and doing what she's told. Yeah. I mean, I, it was always, like, one of those, like, names, like, Ruth, like, and it was always, it was never said with a negative connotation whenever they would talk about her. But it just feels, like, very empty. Much like the, the women in all the Mormon stories feels really empty. Because they don't... Don't have any depth of person. With you could swap her anyone. out with any character. Like who she is does not matter to this story. It's interesting that out of like two books in the Bible that are named after women, it's this one and then the Book of Esther. Esther succeeds because she's the prettiest girl in all the land. So it's I mean, it's like either submission God. or beauty or motherhood. You know, it's those seem to be like the top three values like you're either a good mom really submissive or you're just so attractive that you can't be <laughs> you know denied not too attractive because if you're too attractive that's bad too yeah no like you can't be a, a jezebel you know <laughs> i've been noticing like just in my own life how i've been conditioned into like not giving my opinions about things i think that that definitely is in some ways fallout from being raised in this kind of culture where like that seems to be your best possible trait as a woman is silent submission and obedience I would definitely say that there's a lot of people who internalize that quite a bit. And I think it also depends on how you're treated as a child as well, like whether or not people like valued your opinion. And I still meet men who just look straight through me and pretend like I don't exist. You know, there's there's simply people who think that you can't contribute to a conversation um, as a woman. And, you know, that I find that really gross. Like if you're one of those yeah. people who just just like look through someone and just like don't listen you should really consider rethinking that I would imagine that a guy who doesn't want to listen to women on probably wouldn't listen to this podcast, podcast yeah he does but he it just sounds like silence to him right like just white noise <laughs> static <laughs> definitely it was born out in my childhood where I just like wasn't allowed to have a strong opinion about a lot of things and then through my disastrous first marriage kind of just learning that nobody wants to hear what I have to say about anything Aww. it's really damaging yeah and it's kind of a condition of the world we live in but I always felt like one of the boys so I would run my mouth a lot when I was a kid and so I've always been really argumentative and always wanting 
wanting to be a part of the conversation. So I never found myself being quiet about things. But and also I, I always felt like I had to speak for people who were too afraid to speak. My growing up was not like super talkative. I went through weird phases of it. I was like a rambunctious tomboy, mouthy kid, but then I had that whole episode with my lupus flare up and like I almost died and my kidneys were failing and after that I truly did believe that if I had died I would have gone to hell, which is a tough thing for a 12 year old to believe. And then through this combination of like people not really wanting to listen to what I had to say and all also crippling anxiety, crippling body image issues, and all the other trauma that was going on. I went through a period of time where uh, I just didn't talk for a few years. Like, I would talk to my close friends. In general, I was just always silent. Yeah, and, I, and there's definitely no and, shame in having to, like, had that experience and not always wanting to say something because it can be equally as harmful with people who just talk and talk and talk you know without listening yeah it was like a kind of crock pot of nasty shit brewing that I went through that with but I did start talking more when I became a teenager I remember actually like feeling convicted that I should give my testimony at one of our music scenes so I asked my youth leader if I could and then from there I started getting more involved in like the drama and stuff like that. But yeah I think it's worth everyone just sort of reflecting on whether or not they they were affected by the way that they were treated either in the church or just uh, as a kid because so often they tell you when you're a kid that oh that's just a kid like you don't know much and they sort of discount like both your feelings and your your thoughts and to a certain degree I you know I've I've been there where I've been like oh you're being dramatic because you're a kid or whatnot but there's a lot of great things that come from listening to young people and children I think that the thing that we're starting to understand more and more with children is that they are humans they're their own individual human beings and you don't own them because you spawned them yeah. In general, you'll get better results from children if you just treat them like they're human beings. And they'll always have a lot to learn, but I just wouldn't always assume that you know better. I would say listen first. I think that's probably just something to reflect on just because, you know, a lot of people who grew up in the church, and maybe you're not listening because you grew up in the church, but like being talked down to or seen through, whether you're it's because you're a woman or whether it's because you're a child and no one wanted to listen to and you, you sat at the kids table instead of at the adult table you know your your feelings were still valid i feel like we're also learning in the modern era that creating a culture in which women and children are to be silent really creates a perfect environment for abuse right and for abuse to flourish because then they aren't honest and they don't think you'll trust it and that happens super often when there's child abuse especially in church situations because the authority the per people with like oh well who will they believe me or you they often internalize that like kids who are abused by these figureheads in their church they don't right. come out and it's talk like, about it you can't say it's a power struggle right you can't say anything about it and if you do say something about it then you probably won't be believed anyway so it really creates an environment for these abusers to get away with doing whatever they want 
And then in some churches, you'll see abusers that they do know about get shuffled around to other churches, and then they just continue the abuse there. Yeah, they, they try to make it out like that doesn't happen, but it certainly does. Like, bad priests and, you know, leaders tend to just move on to the next one, and they hope that their behavior changes, but they never get any sort of punishment either, so why would they change? Yeah. It happens so regularly. It's frustrating. I think that the story of Ruth is just a reminder of how belittling they can treat women and, and by proxy like children, just anyone they see as less than in the church, and there's a cascading effect of that. Blind obedience is not actually a virtue. Yeah. Somebody who asks you for blind obedience, that's a red flag. Absolutely. Blind obedience or just like choosing not to listen to you or tut-tutting the things that you have to say, those are all red flags and no one instead of like a spiritual leadership setting should be doing that to you. Yeah, and this whole story is gross. <laughs> it is. And the marriage... Thing and just being treated like property and Naomi couldn't own her husband's property she couldn't inherit his property she had to get like another man from the family line to do it for her Ugh. don't treat people like property like slavery is bad okay <laughs> like how other how else do you sort of like raise that like you just shouldn't do that or treat people that way i'm trying to like separate out how it affected me in my own life because obviously like we weren't doing marriage arrangements that way in my church but it is just so reinforcing the idea that as a woman my ideal state is kind of obedient just you know don't speak up and do what you're told it's a dangerous thing to teach. Oh yeah, definitely a dangerous thing to teach. I don't think that the story of Ruth really resonated with me. It always felt like a, a story that was just like, oh, well, that's so old. I don't really know how to relate to that story. But I did always think that it was interesting that she had her own book. That there was like, I don't think that I even thought about it more than a few times. But just being like, oh, there's a book in the Bible about Ruth. And Ruth yeah. is a girl. <laughs> I'm a girl. It was, it was depressing to me that like, of the two women who get a book named after them, both of them, the power comes through who they marry. And Ruth is praised for being kind and obedient Nestor is pretty so it was a bummer to not really have girl role models that I could look up to in the Bible per se I mean there's like the Proverbs 31 women and some of the women in the Bible were more interesting than that but they weren't apparently good enough to get a book named after them so yeah I guess it's good to like reflect back on that story because it wasn't one that stuck out to me at the time but the more that I have reflected about it with you today I just even more convinced that it was pretty garbage. Like, there had to have been more cool yeah. women that they wrote about. Couldn't have just been these two, right? There are cool women in the yeah. Bible, just that the ones that we get books named after are not particularly cool or interesting. Ruth is commemorated as a matriarch in the Calendar of Saints. In the Lutheran religion, her day is July 16th. There is a location in Hebron, called the Tomb of Ruth that was associated with Ruth sometime in the 17th century. Uh, the Jewish holiday Shabbat, uh, the book of Ruth is read. 
and that's like a tradition. Ruth is one of the five heroines of the Order of the Eastern Star, which is a Masonic order. They make a movie starring Elena Eden, in which Ruth is a pagan priestess in Moab, and she gives that up. The Book of Ruth, Journey of Faith, is a second movie about her, starring Sherry Morris. That one was in 2009. And she pops up in a John Keats poem called Ode to a Nightingale. She's not even a real character. Well, it's just kind of incredible there's been all of these spin-offs on her when she is so unmemorable like she she doesn't like contribute really to a story I guess that's where people can sort of fabricate the details of it and make it maybe more glamorous maybe it'd be worthwhile to watch some of those make her like, like a projection yeah it would be we should do that sometime we should Just watch a movie it night with all of the biblical stories because really there's been a lot of them I guess you kind of project whatever positive traits you want into her right give her the character that she so severely lacks in the story right (laughs) it's nice i guess that they made her a pagan priestess but then of course she has to give up her religion and her power to go be poor in bethlehem right and maybe that's part of it that the sacrifice of just like not being worldly to go and be poor i don't know i wonder if there was like more to that aspect of the story that maybe they projected more value to what's in it for her i think that's what it was is like she didn't have like a monetary or like lifestyle sort of motivation it was just like she just felt she needed to be there at a particular time i feel like the story could be told as a tragedy she gave up everything go be poor for a while until she was purchased by a rich man yeah that's 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 pretty sad really (laughs) she had her own value in her community later just treated like property in like some other land i don't like it we should start a hashtag called ruth deserves better ruth deserves better (laughs) to hell yeah fuck that those guys and she should just started her own farm with blackjack and hookers (laughs) (laughs) i feel like this story comes with a built-in sin to recommend oh disobedience oh yeah life is too short to obey yeah disobey someone if they tell you to do something that isn't good for you you are your own person you can make your own decisions if anybody tells you to propose to someone by laying down at their feet in the middle of the night don't do it yes that definitely specifically that Well, once again, if you have feedback or anything that you would like to share with us, our email is edensapplepodcasts at gmail.com. Do you also have the Instagram now? Oh, yeah, the Instagram. We we have the Instagram, which is also Edensapplepodcast. Bye. Bye.